For the week of Wednesday, November 21st, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, we talk first with Congresswoman-elect from the 8th Congressional District, Dr. Kim Schreier. In a wide-ranging discussion, we talk about her experiences thus far in D.C., about the surprising election night, and about what she plans to do right away on issues like gun safety, checking corruption in the Trump administration, and of course, health care. I would say we need to be delivering within this year on things like bringing down the cost of prescription drugs, making sure that no families go bankrupt because of medical costs, making sure that premiums come down and shoring up the Affordable Care Act. Also, the state of Georgia has been in the spotlight following the midterms, in part because the 6th District elected its first African-American ever and its first Democrat since 1979, and also because of the contested gubernatorial race there. We check in with the head of Indivisible Georgia's 6th, Amy Nosek, to get a view from the ground. And finally, back here in Washington, the Democratic Party will be undergoing a reorganization, or reorg, and 5th Legislative District Committee member Josh Troopin joins us to break down what it all means. That's all coming up, so stay with us. As most of you who listen to this show know, Dr. Kim Schreier made history by becoming not only the first Democrat to be elected to Washington's 8th Congressional District, but also by being the first woman, and further to that, by being the first female physician ever to be elected to Congress. We have been honored here on the show to have her with us on numerous occasions during her run, and we are honored again to be joined by her now, and I particularly delight in introducing her in this manner. Welcome back to the show, Congresswoman-elect Dr. Kim Schreier. Thank you, Stefan. It is so nice to be back on the show talking with friends. And I just want to say for the listeners out there, thank you for your hard work in helping me get elected. Thank you for putting your faith in me. Um, and thank you for your vote. I am uh, I am honored and I look forward to delivering results for you. Well, yeah. And, you know, actually, that was a question that I, I did want to kind of get into. Uh, and it is a broad one because there are so many factors. You know, there are the volunteers. There's certainly the messaging, the staff, the Trump factor, all of your hard work. Uh, but talk a little bit about what you attribute your victory to. Well, I think there are a lot of things, and I don't believe that there is any one part that really put me over the top here. I believe it was part that right now healthcare is the number one issue on people's minds, and yeah. that is an issue I can speak to. Um, and I think that was critical. I think part of it was being an outsider at a time when people are dissatisfied with Congress and they want fresh voices. I think part of it was the Trump effect and women. And I have to tell you that. We had the best, strongest field program in the entire country. And the way that people came out and supported me in this campaign, the energy around this campaign, that people were fired up. I mean, it was it was that momentum that so many people, you know, you can do anything with your free time. You can hang out with your family. You can watch TV. Um But people took their own personal time and said, you know what, this matters, and we want to elect a woman doctor who will really represent our district. And they spent those hours with me and with people knocking on doors, and I will be forever grateful. 
Well, I saw it firsthand, uh, not only your, your field organization in terms of your staff who were, were incredible, but yeah, certainly the volunteer effort was unlike anything that I've ever personally encountered before. So, uh, and, you know, we'll get into some of the particulars about your plans for the future in just a moment, but I, I have to ask what was going through your head on election night, uh, because most people didn't expect the results to be definitive that night, uh, in part because it was expected that the results were going to be very close. Had you been expecting to wait it out? I expected to not know for potentially weeks. I thought that this was going to be a squeaky tight race. We were neck and neck in the polls. I, I felt optimistic because I felt this buzz and this energy and momentum, but I, uh, I did not expect to have definitive results on election night. And I had this mix of emotion, like this sigh of relief that I think everybody in the room had that we had flipped the house and that checks and balances were back and that fresh voices were back and we could all rest well. And this excitement about this new this new class and this new energy and what that would mean for the direction of the country and that, oh my gosh, we would have a Democrat representing the 8th District and I, I am excited to deliver. Well, yeah. So you you mentioned the mood among uh, freshman Democrats. You've been to D.C. You've been to the freshman orientation. What is the mood like when you are, are talking among your, your fellow freshman Democrats? There's phenomenal energy in the room. Hmm. There is excitement. There uh, is, you know, kind of the same energy that we felt on election night. Uh, I am feeling in D.C. There is a jovial mood and this 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 energy around getting to work on issues that matter to voters, not just all over the 8th District, but all over the country, that when I talk with these other freshman members elect, they're talking about health care. They're talking about the cost of prescription drugs. They're talking about infrastructure. They're talking about women's rights being threatened. And I am so heartened by the fact that we are all going to join together, even with all of our distinct voices, to go to bat for the people in our district with a lot of the same issues. Yeah, and I I absolutely want to break down just a couple of those things that you just mentioned. But first, I honestly have some questions about some of the practicalities, and I know I'm not alone in this. Uh, The freshman orientation, I think a lot of us are curious, what is that process like when you you show up to, to Congress for the first time? Yeah, practicalities are a big deal. Oh, my goodness. So um, it is in in some ways like going back to college orientation, Uh, (laughs) you know, all of these boxes to check and offices to visit and photos to take and things to get in order. But it's like that on steroids. So this is, you know, I need to hire a staff of 18 people. I need to have an office uh, in Washington, D.C., but more importantly, I need to have really well-oiled machine offices here in the district. This is where it all happens. So having an office um, in the district and not just, you know, in in the most populous parts of the district, but making sure I've got an office in Wenatchee and I've got an office in Auburn because this is a big district. and I want to be present for people thinking about constituent services as a huge part of this job. You know, there's the part that happens in Washington, D.C., but there's the really important part that happens right here when people are having trouble navigating the big bureaucracy of the federal government and not getting, you know, they need help getting those social security checks and making sure that veterans get their benefits. And um, so there's a lot to set up in order to be able to start delivering 
immediately. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a huge task. And just in terms of your work in Congress, are you working toward a particular committee assignment? How does that process work? Well, I would love to be on the Energy and Commerce Committee. And that is because that is where healthcare lives. And frankly, having uh, having the only being the only woman doctor in Congress right now, I think that is a critical voice to have on that committee. I mean, uh, to only have um, people with a non-medical background or even people with a medical background who don't have the perspective of a woman doctor, it just seems like this is a critical missing voice. And so I am making a very strong argument that the one woman doctor in Congress should have a seat at that table in energy and commerce, even though it is an exclusive committee that freshmen um, traditionally never get a place on. Well, it's certainly a strong argument and it makes sense. Um, and then I, I will just ask you um, what caucuses you've joined or what caucuses you're looking to join. Uh, a number of listeners have asked specifically if you have plans to join the Progressive Caucus. Um, you know, I have not thought as much about caucuses. Uh, I would like to uh, I would like to meet with representatives. I, I think that there are parts of this district's philosophy that match up with the Progressive Caucus and that match up with the New Dems Caucus and that those ideas are not mutually exclusive. And so uh, let me get my office in order first and yeah. then think about caucuses. How about that? We'll save it for the next interview. <laughs> that sounds perfect. We'll check back in with you on that then. Okay, so you did mention healthcare, And of course, we know this is front and center to your campaign because you were the first female doctor elected to Congress. And, and so, you know, on last week's show, we talked with the policy director of Indivisible about the importance of the first 100 days of a new Congress and about how what happens during that period sets the legislative agenda for the Democrats for the first two years of that Congress. And it also informs the platforms of Democrats who will be running for president, which is <laughs> that that train's about to pull out of the station any moment now. So uh, I'm wondering how you see proposing, sponsoring, co-sponsoring healthcare legislation in light of that particular dynamic. Um, I, I think that sounds uh, absolutely right on target, that we need to set our messaging and our agenda for the next two years, and it ha- has to happen quickly. In fact, I would say we need to be delivering within this year on things like bringing down the cost of prescription drugs, making sure that no families go bankrupt because of medical costs, making sure that premiums come down, um, and and shoring up the Affordable Care Act. But it also means really thinking about our democracy as a whole. I think we are all frustrated with the amount of money in politics. I uh, hope I look forward to being a leader on getting all of this dark money out of politics. I took no corporate PAC money as a candidate. And to get back to really having a government that is by the people and for the people, we need a couple really fundamental issues addressed. One is money in politics and the other is voting rights because every citizen in this country needs to be able to cast a vote and know that their vote will be counted. And we have seen um, a lot of concern about um, voters being disenfranchised. And that needs to be addressed and money in, in politics needs to be addressed before we can make headway, even on matters like healthcare. 
Yeah. Well, and this is something that is voting rights and dark money are two of the things that are being addressed in H.R. 1, I believe, which is the very first uh, House resolution. And so that will be coming up for a vote. And I would imagine that you'll probably be a voice behind that. Um, You were also included. You tweeted about this. You were in an NPR piece about Democrats who would like to see gun safety legislation. And we know this from your campaign. I imagine that you've seen the hashtag on Twitter of doctors responding to the NRA's demand that doctors, quote, stay in their lane. What's been your response to that? And what are you hoping to do around the issue of gun safety? Uh, Well, doctors staying in their lane very much means doctors need to be talking about gun safety, because when guns are the number three cause of death in children, it would be Um, inappropriate for us to not ask about guns and whether they are stored safely in a home with children. So uh, I think that uh, it's a pretty funny expression to say doctors should stay in their lane. And I would interpret that as great. We should all be talking about gun violence because it is a public health problem. Yeah, and it's certainly done that. I think this Twitter hashtag has really raised the awareness of that issue. In terms of what you are looking to do around gun safety, uh, like I said, uh, you know, proposing legislation, co-sponsoring, sponsoring, that sort of thing. Are, it, are, do you have any plans to do that in the immediate future? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, who better than a, a mother who sends her child to public schools and a pediatrician who takes care of of teenagers who struggle with depression and would be at high risk with an an unsafely um, owned gun. Uh, So I would like to see guns owned safely and stored up, locked up and out of the hands of children. I would also like to make sure that uh, nobody falls through the cracks and that guns do not fall into the hands of people with a history of domestic violence uh, who would do us harm. So just one last question about your platforms. Um, And this was one that I know uh, excited a lot of people, particularly in the Indivisible movement, and that was confronting corruption. Um, This is arguably the most corrupt presidential administration in history. Uh, And this is an area where this Democratic Congress can have some real teeth, uh, particularly because they have uh, the gavel in so many of the different committees and subpoena power and so forth. How are you personally looking to address corruption and provide some checks and balances uh, to this administration? Well, you know, that collective sigh of relief, that that in many ways is because checks and balances are back and accountability is back and oversight is back. And this is really important. Uh, I, I have said all along that we deserve as a country to understand, for example, what happened in the 2016 election so that we can guard against Uh, corruption and infiltration in the future. We deserve to know about conflicts of interest. And, uh, you know, it it used to be sort of a um, just standard. It was assumed that presidents would release their tax returns. I think it is time to understand that we we need to codify those things, that we should not take that kind of of transparency um, for granted. We can't anymore. And so we need to insist on... Uh, on on steps that will address and fight and prevent corruption. And part of that is in HR1 as well. Yeah. Well, I will just conclude by asking you, uh, have you found a place to live? I hear that can be actually very challenging in D.C. these days. I did find a place to live. And I have to tell you that um, that was a huge sigh of relief. And no. I will be living in a building where several other members of Congress live. So I will have the opportunity to 
have sort of a, a walk and talk and kind of, you know, work through some of the issues on the way to the Capitol in the morning. And that's pretty exciting. We'll have a whole walking team together. Yeah, this is all incredibly exciting. I think that is the absolutely apt word. Well, Congresswoman-elect Dr. Kim Schreier, we're all very proud of you. Congratulations and uh, best of luck. Thank you, Stefan. And again, thank you to everybody out there who put in hours and wore down the soles of their shoes and talked with their friends and made sure people voted. This was a community effort and a whole movement. And I am deeply grateful and always will be. So following the 2018 midterms, a handful of states in the South have managed to capture the attention of the country, mostly due to the elections there that continue to be fought after November 6th. There is the Senate runoff currently happening in Mississippi and in Florida. The top two races for Senate and governor just drew to a close after hand recounts. And of course, there's the state of Georgia, where the margin between gubernatorial candidates Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams was so close that it appeared to be headed for a runoff. This was until Abrams gave a speech on Sunday acknowledging that Kemp would legally assume the governorship, but she pointedly refused to concede. Also in Georgia's 6th congressional district, Democrat Lucy McBath made history by defeating Republican Karen Handel, who narrowly defeated Democrat John Ossoff in the special election back in 2017. So joining us to talk about everything that is going on in Georgia right now is our friend Amy Nosek. Amy is the founder and head of Indivisible Georgia's 6th. Hello, Amy. Hi. Good to be here. Uh, yeah, it's good to have you here. So I want to talk about the mood where you are kind of post-election. I imagine it's a little bit of a mixed bag because uh, while uh, McBath's victory was fantastic and historic, and we'll talk about that in a second, Stacey Abrams' loss was pretty painful. Uh, as I mentioned in her speech, she did not concede, but she did call out systematic voter suppression perpetrated by her opponent, Brian Kemp, as Secretary of State. I- I'd love to just start off with your thoughts about Abrams' speech. Well, oh, initially it was sad. I before the speech even started, I remember I I remember having like a Facebook notification pop up about her going live. And um I turned it on, started watching it, and all of her staff and supporters just started lining up behind the podium. And yeah. I knew immediately what was going to happen. I mean, they had been giving press briefings every day since the election to talk about um the ballot chasing and all the lawsuits that were happening. Um, but I knew this day was different because everyone looked so solemn. And I, I went outside and told my husband, I'm like, she's about to concede. <laughs> so it was just so sad. But she, she ultimately didn't concede. No, that's which, and yeah. so I, I'm just wondering, did you connect with the sort of the defiant, t- it was a great speech. Did you connect with the defiant tone of the speech? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, it was perfect. I mean, uh, like she said herself, um, to concede some, I'm, I'm not going to quote her exactly, but it was something along the lines as, um, to concede is to acknowledge that everything was normal and just, and we know it wasn't. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, I loved, I love that she was defiant about it because it's what we need. I mean, she's the one that should be the governor right now. Um, and I think that's part of why we're so sad because we know that if Kemp had not spent years, and and I should add Karen Handel before him, she was Secretary of State before him. Um, so the years that both of them spent suppressing the vote in various ways, 
is why Abrams is not the governor right now. Well, so for people who may not be totally familiar, and I think most people listening are, but talk actually just some of the specifics about what Brian Kemp did as secretary of state to suppress what is largely Democratic voter turnout. So he has a long record of voter suppression um, that, like many times, we always hear (laughs) disproportionately affects targeted uh, targets uh, Georgia's black population. Um, So he's been doing that since 2012. I think that's around the time he's been in office. Um, So over that span of the years, he has canceled over 1.4 million voter registrations. And nearly half of those have happened just last year. Wow. Yeah. So um, I think it was uh, the New York Times branded him as the enemy of democracy. And I think that's just perfect. I mean, he he really is. That's exactly how we feel about him. Um, So it's especially sad that he is going to be the governor. Well, considering how close the margin was when you look at a number like 1.4 million voter registrations, uh, it that's a number that absolutely could have been decisive. Uh, I know that Stacey Abrams has founded an organization called uh, Fair Fight Georgia, and the group has filed a, a federal lawsuit against these voter suppression tactics with an eye toward uh, improving voter access for elections in 2020 and beyond. So that's something that uh, I definitely uh, want to be keeping an eye on. Um, I, I would like to shift over and and talk about Lucy McBath, because as I mentioned in the intro, she won the race for Congress in Georgia's sixth, which is where you are. She became the first African-American ever to represent the district. She is the first Democrat to win there since 1979. And that was when uh, Newt Gingrich was elected there, which was a rather dark day. Um, so yeah. for people who may not know about her, tell us a little bit about Lucy McBath. She first rose to prominence when she lost a son to gun violence, right? Right. Yeah, that's how most people know about know about her. Um, so it's it's pretty amazing what she's done. I mean, it's she took this horrible tragedy and turned it into something positive. She became the spokesperson for, um, oh, what is it? Why can't I remember? Moms Demand Action. Um, yeah, Moms Demand Action. Yeah, yeah every town for yeah. gun safety. Yeah, so a lot of people, even lo- locally and nationally, know her from that, especially moms and people who are working toward, you know, common sense gun reform. So, um, you know, before she actually ran uh, for Congress, she was running locally in one of our state districts. So last year when we started doing the get out the vote efforts, I think it was last January or February, we started this, you know, knowing that we needed to activate people to lead up to the midterm. So Lucy came to one of our first events for that, but she was not running for Congress at the time. She was uh, local. And I will say that she actually got into the race a little later than the other candidates. And I seem to recall that you and your group were pretty excited about that because she is a great candidate, right? Well, I cannot say we were completely excited um, because, you know, during the primary, we had so many other, we had four other candidates who were running and, I have to mention, it was the first time ever that our group got pretty heated. And oh, was there was right? a lot of drama for a while. That's so happened. There, that actually happened with a lot of groups where uh, there oh, were I people know. who were pulling and, for different candidates. And I know, and it was very frustrating, especially because I I think it was just so many people are completely new to politics in this area and in the in the sixth district. So 
I feel like it was just a constant, like this person, you know, this person versus this person, instead of like, you know, pick your, pick your favorite person, vote for them in the primary. And then we all go, <laughs> we all get out the vote for the, the winner. Well, so but how did you ultimately resolve that, uh, those, those differences in your group? Yeah, I don't know that it's all been resolved. It, mm. I feel like it still pops up. And I, I think there are people that have um, even lost friendships or feel like they can't trust others. So it, it's had it's had lasting effects, unfortunately. So yeah. hopefully we can get over that. But, you know, I'm I'm already anticipating a little bit of drama going into 2020 and thinking about, you know, what happened with Bernie and Hillary and all that. So I'm kind of. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're certainly not the only person to express those concerns. And, and most people, I think, are anticipating some infighting around that when the presidential campaigns kick off imminently. Um, you know, I just want to talk about some of the narratives around the election, because your district is one of those suburban districts in which, uh, so the narrative goes, women uh, led the movement away from Trump and the GOP. And I'm wondering if you saw any of that happen firsthand. Did you happen to know any independent or moderate GOP? GOP women who voted for Democrats in the midterm? I don't think I could say I personally know anyone because I don't hang out with Republicans. <laughs> no, but, um, I guess I was wondering uh, family members or people that you're associated with who you might not choose to be associated with. No, but I will say that I heard lots of stories from people out canvassing or even just out doing their daily life, you know, where daily uh errands and wearing like an abram shirt or a Macbeth shirt and saying you know having people come up and whisper like i've been a lifelong republican but i'm voting democrat this time um we had lots of stories about that but i can't say i knew anyone you know personally but um it, it makes it even harder i know we had those same stories come out with during the ossoff race saying that you know hearing so many Republicans saying they were switching over to vote Democrat and it's, we still couldn't pull, pull yeah. through and win, you know? Well, you won this time and I, I think the trends are, are very hopeful. And, you know, two years ago, it would have been very hard to imagine uh, a black woman getting elected to Congress in Georgia's sixth. And I think it would have be, been equally as hard to imagine a, a black woman coming as close to being elected governor of Georgia as Stacey Abrams did. Um, I'm wondering if you see demographics there starting to shift statewide oh definitely and i i'm not so sure about statewide but definitely around atlanta you know we've become the hollywood of the south we have a lot more people moving into the state and especially around the metro area um but yeah i mean we have high populations we i think we are like 30 at least around atlanta i think we have 30 percent. maybe it's all of georgia 30 percent african-americans um around atlanta especially we have a pretty large growing um, population of Asians and Latinos. So it's definitely changing. And I think what part of what's going on um, with voter suppressions and our issues with the elections is that this is kind of like the Republicans' last stand. They know they're dying. They know they're not going to be able to keep this win up. So they have to implement legal ways to cheat to continue to win, whether it be gerrymandering or suppressing the vote and all of the ways that they they do these things. It's pretty depressing to witness right now. But as we look at the horizon and at the the changing demographics of the country, uh, it does become a a little bit more hopeful. I do want to 
close on talking about the Secretary of State race that's happening because uh, I know that your group is going to be working on that runoff to replace Brian Kemp as Secretary of State. Talk a little bit about the importance of this race, potentially having a Democrat like John Barrow in this role. Could he undo a lot of the voter suppression that Kemp created? Yeah, definitely. I mean, he he has he does not come without flaws. I think he was not the choice for most progressives during the primary. He had some issues. People believe he's pretty racist. They think mm. he um, they don't like his ideas around gun reform. Um, so there were a lot of progressives that did not want him to be the choice. Well, he ended up being the choice, and of course, we're getting behind him. But um, the one good thing is that he does have great ideas about reforming our voting system. Even though he, you feel that he's uh, he's racist? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think he's been – I think he's one of those type of people that don't they, – they don't think they are, mm. <laughs> but they are. Um, you know, and I don't know if he's very that outward about it, but he's been called out. I think there was the one that I can think of was recently it was that someone he called someone boy and that's yeah. just something you don't do. <laughs> um, so that he, there's things like that, that he's been called out for and people have said, you know, you have to stop saying things like that because it's racist. Um, so he's not, he hasn't been the top choice for a lot of us. Um, but, but you're going to get out and work for him nonetheless, yeah, I understand. For sure. Yeah. And the things that he wants to do for the specific role, or we, we need him for that. So a couple things that he plans to do is to enact an automatic registration where people are automatically registered when they do things like get a state-issued ID. Hmm. Um, he wants to secure a new voting system with an audible paper trail because that's something that we don't have right now. We're only one of like... I think just a few states that don't have a paper trail where we can audit the vote. So we, we can never prove what actually happened with it. Right. Um, and that's something that Kemp has been repeatedly called out for and making it easier to vote for, by mail. I know, I think in your state, don't you have vote by mail? We do exclusive vote by mail in Washington. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so the problem here is we have it and anyone, anyone can vote absentee, but it's hard for people with college degrees to figure out how to do it properly without it getting rejected. Really? Wow. So it's not easy. <laughs> so he wants to make it easier. Um, and then, of course, he wants to end voter suppression policies like the voter roll court purges and um, closing down the poll locations, which is something also, you know, Kemp has been known for over the past year. Well, he ran, I know that uh, John Barrow ran uh, almost even with Brad Raffensperger in the general election, but neither got 50%. So there is a real possibility. And I would imagine that given the uh, the activity that your group is undertaking to help put him in office, that you will hold him to account and put pressure on him to make sure that he follows through on a lot of those promises. But uh, I appreciate you, Amy, uh, coming on and giving us an update on everything that is happening down your way. And uh, we'd love to check back in with you in the future. No problem. It was fun.
And finally this week, here in Washington, after every election that occurs in an even-numbered year, the Democratic Party undergoes a reorganization, or reorg for short, where new leaders are elected for all positions in every county and legislative district and also at the top for state leadership. To explain how all of this works, I have called upon our friend Josh Truppen, who is a 5th Legislative District Democratic State Committee member and is also an expert explainer of all things related to the workings of the Washington State Democratic Party. Hello, Josh. Hello, how are you? I'm good. So I just want to know first right off the bat, did I get the explanation right in the intro there of, of what a reorg is and how it works? Uh, yes, you did. So um, according to state law, uh, everyone who was elected as a PCO, if you remember, uh, people had to sign up in May to actually run for the office. As of December 1st, we have a new Democratic Party. So what we need to do is decide who will be the officers, chair, vice chair, secretary, treasurer, and so on, in each of the 88 separate Democratic organizations in the state. And that's done through reorgs. Got it. Okay. And the 88 includes the 39 counties and the 49 legislative districts. And then there is also the race for state leadership, which is a separate issue. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But um, first of all, uh, you talk about the date between December 1st. It starts at December 1st, but it goes all the way through January 16th. So where can people find out about when the vote is happening for their county or LD? Okay, so we have been compiling a list of all of the LD and county reorgs, and the quick link is bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash WA Reorg 2018. So that's capital W-A, capital R in Reorg 2018. And as we figure out the dates for each one, we put them on the sheet so that people can be informed. And elected PCOs, this is really your first and most important duty of the two years, is making sure that you have an executive board or e-board in your county and in your LD that you feel good about. And I should just point out that uh, while only PCOs, elected PCOs, can vote for these positions, anybody at all can run for them. Now, let's talk about the race for state leadership. Uh, This is done differently. This is not voted on by PCOs. So who votes for state leadership? So in each of the reorganizations, an organization chooses two members of the Democratic State Committee who then represent that county or that legislative district in the party. So there are up to 176, and those state committee members are the voting body for the state party. And they choose the state chair and vice chair and treasurer and secretary. Now, this is where it gets kind of interesting because one would imagine that there is a certain amount of lobbying for these top spots, right? What does that look like? Is this anything like what is currently happening with Nancy Pelosi looking to get enough votes for her speakership in the House? Uh, Depending on the cycle and the year, uh, there's usually a lot of interest for higher up roles like state party chair. And that can involve a lot of early vote whipping and counting, building coalitions, even to the point of making sure that you turn people out for favorable state committee members when the LDs vote. So there's definitely a lot of lobbying. 
Um, Washington State is pretty above board and clean with this, but I have turned on radio from Chicago and people actually purchase radio ads running for state committee wow. in Illinois. And I've been told that the average campaign for state committee in California is a few thousand dollars because they treat it like that there. Um, no one is paying, hopefully, to get on the state committee here. Um, and hopefully it's people who have represented their particular district well and are ready to represent the district up at the state level. Well, but of course, the Democratic Party in Illinois uh, has its own reputation <laughs> as being uh, quite— <laughs> It is uh, very special. Yes, yes, it certainly is. Uh, so, um, you know, the Democrats did pretty well in state elections here in Washington. How does that usually impact a reorg? I would imagine that people tend to retain their positions when Democrats do well. Well, it's an, inter it's an interesting uh, bifurcation, to use a fancy word— um, it's it's true that people are generally happier going into a reorganization when we've had great success, but great success also means that you've pulled in a lot of new people with interest in the goings-on of the party. So people who are in positions of leadership may have to work harder to win the trust of the newer people coming in, especially with a group like you know, Indivisible, to name one, mm. where uh, you have a lot of people who are in the process for the first time, and this is the first time they've really seen a reorg take shape. And as a result, uh, would you anticipate that leadership, uh, at least in some counties or precincts, might be uh, pushed a little bit further toward the progressive side of things? Well, we... Um, after the 2016 elections, there was probably 40% turnover in the state committee with a lot of activity left over from some of the Democratic battles previously in the primary. Um, there will always be some turnover, and I'm always, I'm always hoping for the best, most qualified progressive person in every role, because I consider myself a platform Democrat. And how do you mean by that? What, what, what do you mean by platform Democrat? I think that it is important for the Democratic Party to live up to the platform and the values that we espouse. And we need to have people who continue to push for things like um, single-payer health care, for instance. Um, as just one example, I think that we have an incredibly strong platform, especially in the Washington State Party. And I think that the more we live up to that, the better we will do statewide and nationally. Yeah. Well, I mean, it certainly looks like, at least in uh, major parts of the state and the country, that progressives are ascendant. Uh, well, Josh, thank you, as always, for being such an able explainer. Uh, there's a lot more coming up in 2019 and 2020, so we'll be checking in with you again soon. Absolutely. Get out to the reorgs, PCOs, county and LD. 
Well, you heard the man PCOs. Uh, Hey, before we go, I'd just like to take a quick moment before the Thanksgiving holiday to say that I am thankful for many, many things this year. I am certainly thankful for the fact that we all pulled together and helped to flip the House for the Democrats. I am also grateful for the extended margin for the Democrats in both the state, Senate, and House. And I am especially grateful for our indivisible and progressive community here in Washington. Thank you for all you do. This has been a remarkable year in so many ways, and I am glad we're in this together. I hope that you enjoy the holiday. And with that said, that'll wrap up this week's show. For links to everything that we talk about here on the show, you can go to indivisiblepodcast.org. You can also subscribe to the show there. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc., with production assistance from Cecilia Knob. My thanks again to Dr. Kim Schreier, Amy Nosek, and Josh Trupin, with special thanks to Katie Rodahan. And of course, as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. <laughs>